Well, good morning. It's good to be here worshiping. Um, many of you have probably heard me quote Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said uh, that the church is the dearest place on earth to us. And um, our family enjoyed uh, time away last weekend as Barbara and I celebrated our anniversary. But being here this morning is so sweet to be um, worshiping with you, to be in fellowship with you. I think that point Greg made last week about how worship is addressed to God, yes, and it's a form of ministry to one another. Um, I trust you experience that too. You look around and you see other people engaged in worship, trusting these promises, professing these truths, and, um, and our souls are strengthened to be surrounded by other saints. What a what a blessing. So we, we talk a lot here at Emmaus Road Church about living on mission. In fact, you just heard Greg in his welcome talk about worship and witness. And most weeks, either Greg or I will say from up front something along the lines of uh, an articulation of our vision as a church, giving every resident of the city of Sioux Falls repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's grand. That's glorious when you think about every resident of Sioux Falls hearing about Jesus over and over again. And then you zoom into our daily lives. And my guess is that if your day-to-day life is anything like mine, you feel some tension or gap or disconnect between living on mission and then just living everyday life between living for God's glorious and global purposes and then living in the mundane and the routine stuff of life. I mean, if we're honest, much of what we do in our daily lives doesn't look that spectacular. Most of life is just pretty ordinary. There you are doing the dishes again or snow blowing again or mowing the lawn again or changing another diaper or clocking in again and then clocking out again. And if we're honest, my guess would be that many of us would say we have far fewer gospel conversations than we would like. I think that's safe to say. That's probably true for a lot of us, that we, we have aspiration. We, we want to talk about Jesus. We, we want to have gospel conversations. And then daily life happens, and we just kind of find that just doesn't happen as much as we wish it did. We long to see lost people in this city saved, and and then there's everyday life. And and I think that gap between our aspirations and and reality can create, well, all kinds of dangers. There's drift, where we forget about what the mission actually is. There's distraction from the mission. I think it has the potential of causing us disillusionment, like we talk big, but Is anything actually happening? Maybe guilt sets in and you feel like, I just feel guilty that I don't talk about Jesus more. So how can you grow in living on mission in the everyday stuff of life? That's the question I want to explore as we turn our attention to John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 25 and pick up where we, we camped out for a while in Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well about the nature of true worship. It's not here or there. True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And we're going to pick up with the woman's 
response to that claim by Jesus in verse 25. This is God's living word. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You address us. You illuminate our hearts and our minds through this word. You lay claims on our lives. This is no ordinary book. This peels back blinders and cuts through fog of darkness and unbelief and opens a window into great and glorious heavenly realities and we need your spirit's help so that we would see and hear and believe and be changed and so we pray that your word would not fall on hard hearts that reject it in unbelief, but that it would fall on fertile soil and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 times what was sown for your glory and for our good. Amen. So I'm, I'm convinced after reading and studying this text of Scripture that God graciously means to use this text to encourage you as you live your life on mission in the everyday stuff. And so I want to show you how God means to encourage you with this by just asking and answering two broad questions. First of all, what is everyday mission according to this text? What insight do we get from this? And what encouragement then does God offer to us for living on mission in everyday life? So first, what do we mean by 
everyday mission. Pretty simply, everyday mission is just talking about Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. First thing we'd notice in this text is everyday mission is about Jesus. It's all about the person and the work and the identity and the authority and the grace and the power of Jesus. Look at the the woman's words to Jesus. After this conversation about worship, she kind of just does that agnostic thing where you throw your hands up and say, well, who, who can really be sure? Who knows? This is great. You share some nice thoughts with me, but we can't really know. And usually when people give that kind of response, that's just a sign that this is over. Who knows? She says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, in verse 25. And the climax of the whole conversation is the declaration Jesus makes in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Messiah is just the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for God's anointed one, God's anointed king. He's saying, I'm here. All your excuses of who really knows and we can't really be sure are gone because I'm here and I'm telling you with truth and authority, I am the Christ. And so she goes back to her village immediately and look at her witness. Verse 29, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be The Christ, that is the central driving point of this entire narrative, the revelation of Jesus, the man, as God's anointed one, the Christ. And so after the whole village spends a few days with Jesus, they come to the conclusion, verse 42, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The mission, the everyday mission of disciples of Jesus is making Jesus Known, making his person known and his identity, his authority as God's Christ, God's King, the Lord of all creation, making known his life and his death and his resurrection and his grace and his forgiveness. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote an entire gospel dedicated to that single purpose. We've pointed to this before. John chapter 20, verse 31 is his purpose statement for the whole gospel when John says, These things have been written so that you may. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. The whole gospel was written for that. So this encounter is just another one of those examples John is piling up to say, this man, this human being with skin and bones and breath in his lungs, he is the one. And that is the mission, making this person known. Christianity is personal. It's not about a program or a philosophy or a technique. Yes, there are truths to know and believe, and all of those truths are pointing to a person. It's relational. It's covenantal. The only change that happens in anyone's life is through meeting this person. There's no other hope. We don't offer anything else to this city except this person, Jesus That's the mission. And everyday mission means talking about this person. The role of words, verbal witness, person-to-person communication is hard to miss in this text. Verse 28, the woman went into the town and said to the people. She just spoke about what she had seen and heard. Verse 39, many Samaritans of that town believed in him. Why? 
because of the woman's testimony. She spoke about Jesus. People put their faith in him because they heard her witness. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. After hearing Jesus talk, in verse 42, they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said, verbal witness, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Faith always comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so the everyday mission is just simply talking about Jesus, bringing him up in conversation with the confidence that that very ordinary thing of just conversing between human beings is the thing that the Spirit of God is pleased to use to produce faith, new birth, new life, soul-satisfying living water in the souls of the people that we are conversing with. Because the aim of our conversations is faith. The aim of talking about Jesus is that people would come to faith in Jesus. And that is central in this entire narrative. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. Verse 42, we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know by faith we know that this is the Savior of the world. And John is showing us that's the goal, that many more people would come to faith in Jesus. And so everyday mission just looks like talking about Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And we see that from Jesus' example here. He used a lunch break. When he was on a journey, it was around noon, the heat of the day, he was wearied and exhausted, which means by human standards, normally we'd cut ourselves some slack and say, I have a pretty good excuse to not engage with other people. He sits down by a well, and he gets into a conversation with the Samaritan woman over water because he's thirsty, and then he gets into a teaching conversation with his disciples about food because they're hungry, and he's just using the stuff around them in life to point them to deeper spiritual realities, constantly bringing it up. We believe that every disciple of Jesus is called to live on mission in everyday life, and, and we recognize that's going to look different in every one of your lives because your everyday lives are different. So for moms, everyday mission might look like changing diapers, and doing dishes, and spanking bottoms, and wiping noses, and helping with homework. And that is so crucial to sowing gospel seeds and reaping gospel fruit. You're raising human beings. And for nine-to-fivers, you might clock in and clock out, and it might look like being intentional and strategic about your lunch break, eating lunch with coworkers in order to build relationships, to get to know where they need the truth of the gospel. Maybe bringing donuts to your workplace once a month for your coworkers. Maybe your MC could cater a breakfast once a month to help you be on mission to the people you work with. Or maybe it looks like keeping track of your coworkers' birthdays so that you could give them a card and a Starbucks gift card. Just intentional ways in everyday life of engaging with people, blessing them with the very presence of Christ through you. For us, several years ago, it looked like the realization that, hey, if we have our fire pit in the backyard, we don't meet our neighbors. But if we get a mobile one and put it in our driveway and people walk by, we meet our neighbors. So when I get the grill out, I don't grill in the back. I grill in the front so that if somebody's walking by, I can meet them. It's just a simple way of looking for ways to encounter and engage with other people in everyday life. So, so think about the rhythms of life. We talk this way in our missional communities, eating working, recreating, conversing, celebrating, and just ask the simple question, how can I engage with people and bring Jesus up? How can I engage with people and bring Jesus 
up. That's everyday mission. And so for the remainder of this time, I want to ask the question, so what encouragement then does this text offer us for living on mission? I want to draw your attention to four. First is a massive foundational reality to this whole thing. And that is you have God's promise. You have a promise from God. Jesus engaged his disciples in his mission by inviting them to see the unfolding fulfillment of glorious promises. Verse 35, he said to them, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. Three times, he's talking about their sight. Look, lift up your eyes, see it. Because human eyes, flesh and blood can't see this. This is a spiritual reality. And Jesus wants to share it with us. The fields are white for harvest. What does that mean? Jesus is not randomly on a whim, picking the language of harvest and sowing and reaping. He's using the language of the Old Testament to declare that he is the fulfillment of everything that was foretold there. Okay, follow along. Beginning with creation, harvest language is everywhere through the story, the overarching story of God. The third day, God fills the earth with vegetation and plants yielding seed and trees bearing fruit. And on the fifth day, he fills the heavens with fish and the seas with, flip that, heavens with birds and seas with fish. And he says to them, do you notice this? The, The blessing God gives to man when he says to man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do you know he said that to the birds and the fish too? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the heavens and fill the seas. It's all fruitfulness and abundance On the sixth day, God makes man and living animals, and he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and to humans, subdue it and rule over it. God planted a, what? A garden, a fruitful, flourishing garden, and he put Adam in it to work it and keep it. He made creation to be fruitful, and then he crowned it with his image bearers. And Adam plunged all of it into death and subjected it all to futility by his rebellion. And notice the language of the curse, Genesis 3, 17 through 18. The curse to Adam is specifically, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat your bread. But the curse was not God's last word to his creation. God still purposed to fill the earth with humans bearing his image and to make this creation fruitful like Eden was. And so he made promises. And the Old Testament is full of these promises of a day when the world would be restored to Eden-like fruitfulness. Isaiah 27, 6, in days to come. Notice he's talking about his people In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Or consider the concluding lines of Isaiah 40 through 55, 16 chapters addressed to God's people in exile, all comforting words to them of what God still means to do for them in the future. And the last two verses of those, what we call 16 chapters, the last two verses are describing God's 
victorious grace as a reverse of the curse and a restoration of fruitfulness. Isaiah 55, 12, You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands, and instead of the thorn, that's the curse, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, restoration of fruitfulness. So here's how huge Jesus' words in John 4 are. When Jesus said, look, the fields are white for harvest, he's talking about more than, hey, look, here are some people in a village who are going to come to faith in Jesus. He's saying, he's making an eschatological declaration. Eschatology means last things, end times, last days. He's declaring something massive about a new age, an age of human history. He's announcing that his arrival meant the new creation redemption of the entire cosmos had begun. That's massive. Jesus was declaring that the last days, the time when God's new humanity would take root and blossom and fill the whole world with fruit, was no longer a future promise. It was a present reality unfolding in front of their eyes. Those days are now. In Jesus, God's harvest of fruitful humanity has begun. God is right now gathering the glorious and redeemed humanity that he always planned and promised to have. That means the glory of God's new creation began to break into this fallen and cursed creation 2,000 years ago. In the past. And ever since then, as Colossians 1, 5, and 6 say, the gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. The gospel has been bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world for the last 2,000 years. Look what Jesus says in verse 36. The one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. The reaper doesn't get paid until he brings fruit in. Jesus is saying, the harvest is happening. The reaper's getting paid because fruit is appearing now. He's saying the end time harvest of God's new humanity is happening. And he teaches us something about this time we live in, that it's already and not yet. We live in this overlap of the ages when sowing and reaping happen side by side. Normally, sowing and reaping are two separate things, actually like opposites. In Genesis 8.22, seed time and harvest are opposites in a list with cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Usually, these two things are at opposite ends of the spectrum, and Jesus is saying they're happening together. Sower and reaper are rejoicing together, and that is an indication. I think it's a reference to Old Testament promises, eschatological promises, last day's promises. Look at the language of Amos 9, 13, and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Like, no sooner does the reaper gather the fruit than the plowman is right on his heels planting the next crop. The land doesn't need any time to rest and lay fallow in between. 
in order to recover its productivity. The, the plowman is right on the heels of the reaper, and the treader of grapes is overtaking the one sowing the seeds. No sooner does the one planting the seeds get them in the ground than the one treading the grapes comes right behind him and plucks the grapes off the vine. I mean, they, they just got planted, and he's plucking them off the vine. There's no gap between that. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. We hear that level of fruitfulness and say, that sounds nice, but that, that could never happen. But we only think that way because we've never seen a garden. Think about this for a second. You have never seen. We, moving to South Dakota as a kid was a shock, driving past cornfields and soybean fields, and I can tell the difference now. Um, you have never seen a field not cursed by the fall. You have never seen a garden do what Eden did. We can't even imagine this kind of fruitfulness, this kind of productivity, because we've never seen Eden and all of its fruitfulness. But make no mistake, down to the plants and the trees and the animals of this world, this creation will be fruitful again like that one day as a result of the triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the earth. Creation itself is waiting, waiting for the children of God to be glorified, and then creation itself is going to be set free from its barrenness. But the first fruits of the harvest have begun. We have to get the order right. The harvest doesn't happen all at once. The first fruits of the harvest are human souls regenerated by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 8.23. Paul says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of what? Of the new creation. That's what. We have the first fruits now. The Spirit of God in us. Even though, Paul goes on to say, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. That's also going to be part of the harvest. When our bodies are raised up out of our graves. But we have that resurrection life in us now through the Spirit. And then creation itself, Romans 8.21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when Jesus says, look, the fields are white for the harvest, He's not saying, hey, evangelism is going to be really easy. He's going to like bump into people and they're going to turn to faith in Christ. Fruit's just going to be dropping off the, the, the vines. No, I mean, look at his own disciples who were martyred and persecuted for their witness. He's not saying evangelism is going to be easy. Depending on the time and the place that you live by God's providence, you may find that you're sowing or reaping or laboring to plow hard ground, but Jesus is saying, here's the promise you have and the encouragement we have for living on mission. Jesus is saying that whether you sow or whether you reap or whether you get to sow and reap, the gospel is going to bear fruit in all the earth. That's the comfort that we have and the motivation we have to keep living on mission. All right, that's, that's the first encouragement and the longest one. Because that gives us the paradigm for all of life. This is what God is doing now. We live in the harvest age now. Second thing, you have a testimony 
A fruitful harvest always produces seeds for the next harvest. Unless you buy seed from Monsanto and you sign an agreement to buy from them every year. But normally, a harvest produces seeds for the next season, right? Likewise, when the gospel bears fruit in you, the, the harvest of righteousness in you will yield seeds for you to sow in the lives of others. Verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went away into the town, said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the result was many people in that town believed in him because of her testimony. In God's wisdom, he magnifies the glory of his grace by using the witness and the testimony of changed lives to convince more and more people to trust in Jesus. And that's why we talk about and practice tools. And we, we, we make sure everybody knows these are just tools. You don't have to memorize these things and then in some rote, robotic way recite them. But we want to be intentional about stewarding the story of God's redeeming grace in our lives so that we can sow seeds in the lives of others. So we talk about tools like a 15-second testimony. There was a time in my life when, and then Jesus, and I discovered the joy of, for example, there was a time in my life when I was anxious and afraid, but then Jesus saved me from the wrath of God and promised to work all things, including all the things I was afraid of, for my very good. And so I put my trust in him and I discovered the joy and the peace and hope of belonging to Jesus. Do you have a story like that? And that simple question, do you, do you have a story like that? Brings up opportunities to talk about Jesus with others. I mean, I think you probably know people, work with people, live next to people who deal with anxiety, fear, guilt, despair, depression, anger, all kinds of things, right? But do they have a story like this? You do. So introduce them to Jesus. Or we talk about the three circles within that framework. We suggest, here's how you can transition to a gospel conversation. Just listen attentively for any time somebody's talking about a problem, an issue, or a concern in their life. And don't just listen for the problem, issue, or concern. Listen for the person behind it. What's their particular fear or worry, or frustration, or doubt, or whatever. Listen for that, and then ask them in just two simple sentences, something like, hey, I haven't been through that exact thing you're talking about, but I can relate to those fears you feel, or that guilt you feel, or whatever. Would you mind if I just took a moment to tell you something that's really helped me? And then talk about Jesus. Here's how our discipleship huddle guide, which comes from Saturate Resources, says it. We often wonder how to share the gospel with our not yet believing friends. And yet every time, think about this, every time we experience the convicting work of the Spirit and the forgiveness of Jesus, we have another amazing story to tell about how Jesus is saving us today. He's saving me right now. I don't just have a testimony of years ago. I have ongoing testimonies that are just piling up of more and more areas of my life that Jesus is transforming by his grace. And all of those stories give me points of contact with people around me who are dealing with those hardships and discouragements and frustrations and fears of living in a fallen world. So if a neighbor asks, how are you? You could take the safe route and say, oh, just fine. Or, or you could step out in faith and be vulnerable and share a recent struggle with, say, anger or worry or pride and then point to what Jesus is doing in you. Pointing people to Jesus. That, that's what personal testimonies do. Because in the end, testimonies don't save anyone. 
Only Jesus saves. And so, verses 41 and 42, many more believed because of Jesus' word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, nobody was knocking her testimony. They're just rejoicing that they personally came to know the same man she came to know. Their their knowledge of Jesus was no longer rumor, no longer secondhand. It wasn't hearsay. They met Jesus too. Saving faith always means more than just believing somebody else's life changed. It means believing Jesus' words. You're not a Christian if you don't believe all of Jesus' words. That's a big deal. Lots of people profess to be believers, and then they work their way through the Bible, cutting out all the parts they don't want to submit to or they don't like or they don't fit into. Look, if, if you do that, you've never submitted to Jesus once in your life. You just pick the parts of Jesus that fit with your agenda because you're on the throne of your own life already. You know he's the king of your life when you start submitting to all his word. That's what it means to be a, a Christian. So have you experienced the forgiving, redeeming, justifying, transforming grace of Jesus? If not, turn to him and take him at his word today. And if you have, then ask yourself this question we encourage our huddles to ask. Who is the Holy Spirit leading you to tell this week about what Jesus is doing in you? Who could you share this with? Just your own story of how God is changing you. Who could you share that with? Third encouragement. You have the very Spirit of Christ in you. Look again at the woman's specific testimony about Jesus. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Remember what Jesus said to her in their interaction, go get your husband, and she said, I don't have a husband, and Jesus said, that's right, you've had five, and the man you're sleeping with now isn't even your husband, and she said, whoa, how did you know that? Think about this. Why would you be excited about meeting a person who disclosed your shameful secrets? You would probably be more alarmed and afraid than anything and want them to stop talking quick before they say something more serious about what you've done in the past or what you've been hiding. The only explanation for her excitement to go tell her village is that she encountered grace. Her soul thirsts were satisfied. John makes note of the fact that she actually left her water jar, the whole reason she went to the well. Jesus gave her living water. She encountered the presence of God when she met this man who had supernatural knowledge of her past. And the very same Spirit of God now dwells in and empowers His church for mission, which means, here's what that means for us, the broken and lost people around us that we rub shoulders with in everyday life can encounter that living Christ through you. That's what God means for this world, for people to keep on meeting the living Jesus through His living Spirit who lives in us. That's crazy. This is one reason that we desire as a church to obey the biblical command in 1 Corinthians 14. 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That's a missional gift. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25 says it like this. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters and he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. The secrets of his heart are disclosed through the gift of prophecy at work in the church. And what happens? And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 
Charles Spurgeon is often cited by cessationists, those who believe that the spiritual gifts don't continue today, as an esteemed preacher and theologian who was also a cessationist and believed the gifts of the Spirit had ceased. And if Spurgeon was confessionally a cessationist, functionally he was not. By his own account, in at least two different places, his autobiography and a, a collection of his sermons, he tells this story. Listen, Spurgeon's words. While preaching in the hall on one occasion... I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence when there was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. That man later confided in someone, I did actually take nine pence on that day. And four pence was exactly the profit. But how he should know that, I could not tell. They had never met before. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through that man. So I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first, I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell the people more about me. But afterwards, I went. And the Lord met me there and saved my soul. These are Spurgeon's words again. I could tell you as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at someone in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. That's what we understand the New Testament gift of prophecy to be. And we believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer and empowers all believers with a variety of gifts to build up the church and for mission. Jesus said, when, you're, when my spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in all the earth. The spirit of God is his gift to us, his very presence for mission. And so another way to speak of our vision is not just that people would hear the gospel again and again and have opportunities to turn to Jesus in faith, but that people would encounter the living Christ in their daily lives as they meet us because the very spirit of Jesus lives in us. So pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And here's the fourth and final encouragement from this text. You will be supernaturally sustained as you go. Jesus says in verse 31, his disciples, meanwhile, were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. But he doesn't mean to keep it a secret. The disciples said to one another, did somebody bring, bring him food? I mean, this, this is like Jesus with Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, what? Enter into my mother's womb again? What are you talking about? Or the woman at the well, living water. And she says, well, you don't have anything to draw with. And the well is deep. How are you going to offer this living water to me? The, you see this again and again in John, we see this confusion because people are thinking on a purely physical plane and Jesus is introducing spiritual realities and he says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus himself was nourished and sustained by living on mission and he is teaching us something about what it means to be human. This is not something just unique to him as the Messiah. He's teaching us how to be human. We've already seen this in John. We have two thirsts, physical thirst and soul thirst. Your body has two hungers, physical hunger and heart hunger. 
You need food and water, yes, and your soul needs nourishment too. So no doubt Jesus was still, physically speaking, thirsty and hungry. He was weary from his journey. Remember how the story started? He sat down by a well. It was noon, the heat of the day. He's hungry. His disciples go to get food. He asks the woman for water. Matthew 4, after Jesus comes out of the wilderness of being tempted for 40 days, Matthew 4, 2 says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which sounds like the most obvious statement in the world. Hungry after 40 days, I, I wonder. But the point is, he was actually human. It wasn't like he was, you know, Superman and just faking it. He actually was hungry physically. As the eternal Son of God, his divine nature didn't need food at all, but he had a real human nature, just like ours, except without sin. And so he's showing us something about how human beings are meant to live. He's, he's pointing us all the way back to Deuteronomy 8. Human beings were never made by God to live by bread alone, but by bread and every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's how Jesus lived. And if Jesus needed that, you and I need that. You can be sure of that. And Jesus needed it. As a man, Jesus lived by every word that came from the mouth of God. He always did his Father's will. John 5, 30, I can do nothing of my own. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is how he lived his life, and this is how he was nourished and energized and sustained by the Father, living on mission. And Jesus involves us in that work. Lest you think, well, you know, Jesus had a unique work to die for the sins of the world. That's not our mission. But his mission here of telling other people that he was the Messiah, he engages us in that. Verse 38, he says to his disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. He's involving his disciples in his work. And it's crucial for us if we're going to have any traction on mission, any success in this endeavor that we realize living on mission takes more than calories. It takes kind of energy you can't get from carbs and protein and fat. Living on mission requires supernatural strength, God's supplied strength. I mean, if you have ever engaged with people relationally, gotten involved in the mess of caring for people through sin and brokenness, or if you've opened your home to show hospitality, you know it takes energy. And not just the kind of energy flesh and blood has. I mean, it's on purpose that Peter, when he gave that command in 1 Peter 4, when he said, show hospitality, he specifically commanded the way to show it. Show hospitality, you know how it ends? Without grumbling. <laughs> that wasn't like a random add-on. He just knows if you're going to show hospitality, you are going to be tempted to sin by grumbling. So you need more than what flesh and blood can give you. If you try to live on mission by the strength of the flesh, relying on physical energy, the kind you can get by sleeping and eating, you're going to run out. You're going to burn out. You need something more. And here's the encouragement of this text. The way you get strength for living on mission is counterintuitively by living on mission. That's crazy. I mean, we're used to First you sow, then you wait a while, then you reap. First you eat, then you get the energy that you need. You carb up before a big game, before the race. You, you eat to get your energy. You eat to do your work, then you work to get food to eat again so you can go work again. And Jesus says, my food is working. I, I get food by working. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.29 when he says, for this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works Within me. 
He works His energy in me as I toil and struggle to cause you to be formed into the likeness of Christ. So don't rely on the strength of your flesh to live on mission. You will burn out. Rather, live on mission by faith in order to feast on this supernatural strength God will supply to you. And for that, very briefly, I would commend to you, Greg and I have both mentioned this acronym before, APTAT, admit, pray, trust, act, thank. I, I use that so often in my own personal life. I just admit, God, I'm weak. I don't have what it takes to do this thing I'm about to do right now. So I, I pray, help me. And then I trust a specific promise of his provision, of his presence, of his help, of his grace. And then I just step out and act and find that as I act, he provides all that I needed for the acting. In the act of acting, he works in me. And so then it's fitting to just, at the end, thank him because he's faithful to keep his promise to us. So we live in the city, we love this city, and tens of thousands of people here don't yet know Jesus. We have a glorious mission, and by God's design, our everyday, ordinary, mundane routines give us the very context where God means to bless people with encounters with the living Christ through us. So you have God's promise, it's gonna happen. He is gathering his harvest. You have a testimony of his redeeming grace in you to share, and you have the spirit of the living Christ dwelling in you. And as you go, you will be nourished and sustained by food that this world does not know. So let's keep living on mission together in this city for the glory of Jesus and for our joy and for the good of the people that God has placed in our lives.